Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, let's bow our hearts and open up with a word of prayer. Our all-gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that your word gives us. We thank you for the thread of love that covers every page, binds every story, and binds our hearts to that story. Please use this time to help us to better understand who we are to your kingdom and more about the great links that you have gone to to give us that hope that you've called us to share with others. So join us now as we seek to better know you, to better make you known. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So we are continuing in our study of Revelation, but for the next few sessions, we're going to be diving more into the background that leads up to Revelation 6 to 24. And the reason that we're doing it this way is because part of the reason that uh, Revelation is so confusing to people is because John, who pens it, is taking for granted that you know your Bible, cover to cover. Genesis 1-1 to his third epistle. So the language that he's writing the book of Revelation in is very much still the language of the customs, the traditions, and the stories of the Old Testament, the culture that he's coming from. And unless we get that, we're not going to understand his frame of reference. So to help us better understand where he's coming from, the things that he's seeing, and the way that he's interpreting what he's seeing, we're going to take a couple of sessions and we're going to look at some of the finer points. Right now we're covering the book of Ruth, specifically what it tells us about the process of the kinsman redeemer, Christ being ours, Boaz in the case of this little book. And if you haven't read the book, I'm taking it for granted as we process on that, that you took me uh, at my word last session and you read through the book of Ruth, which is only four chapters. If you didn't and you're watching us online, I, if, you did, if you're here in person and you haven't read it, well then just hang on. But if you're watching us online and you haven't, I, would, uh, I encourage you, pause right now Go to one of the three Bible apps, either Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, BlueLetterBible.com, one of those. They're free resources. Look for an audiobook version of whatever your favorite translation is. Listen to it and then come back to us on YouTube. But you'll need to have that in thought. We're not going to read it off because we wouldn't have time to do that. It's four chapters. But it's again, it's a light read, but not one that I want to spend time doing here. To cover it in brief... We're preparing our minds to wrap our hearts around what's going to happen from chapter 4 on, 4 through 22. Excuse me, I think I accidentally said 24 a little while ago. We're going to take a look at Ruth. We're going to take a look at Daniel's 70 weeks. We're also going to have a look at what Paul says when he talks about the arpazzo, what we call the rapture. But before we get into that, in brief... The book of Ruth opens up 
with Naomi, who is the unfortunate widow of a family that comes from Judah, from Bethlehem specifically. She lived during the time of great famine. So her and her family abandoned their property in Judea, along Bethlehem. They leave for the country of Moab. And there's all kinds of weirdness there, and I'll, I'll, we'll delve into that just a little bit later. But as they're sojourning in the land of the enemy, and I want you to pay attention to that, her husband dies. Her two boys die. One of her daughter in -law, daughters-in-law loves her so much and is so overwhelmed by her kindness that she forsakes her own family, her own country, her own pantheon of gods. They were worshiping the Baals, if I remember correctly. And she declares to her mother-in-law, I will go wherever you go. Your God will be my God. So she's brought into the family first through faith and then formally through marriage. Does this sound familiar? She makes a declaration of faith that makes her part of the people of Israel. She, it makes her a Jew. And then through her marriage to Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, she becomes part of the family of God in its fullness. The promise and then the promise fulfilled. This is a reflection of Christ's redemptive relationship with the church that we're going to touch on in just a second. So make sure that you have your notes present. Print them out if you have the opportunity to. They're at highlandbaptistchurch.org, so please follow along with us. But we want to take a look at the process of the kinsman redeemer and what that means. Everything in the Bible is there by design. There isn't any ink that is wasted from cover to cover. And what I want you to get from that is that the law, the customs, the people of Israel, the very word choices that they use, all of it, the numbers, all of it is there by design. And through that, we see a, a dark image of a heavenly reality. Not dark as in evil, but dark as then we don't fully understand because it hasn't been completely revealed to us over the course of time. When we get to the book of Revelation, we see that all this stuff makes sense. We see all the allusions to Ruth. We see all the allusions to Torah. We see all the allusions to 1 Thessalonians. We see all that come to fruition. But if we don't know our Bible, we don't get it. And that's where we get up with all these different other meanings, all these strange doctrines that prevail us. But in Hebrew custom, the Goel, which is what we're looking at here in terms of who Boaz is in the story is either one of two things depending on where you find it in Scripture. The, the translation roughly means next of kin. It's often, because of its place in their society, used as either the avenger of blood or the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. The word, if you, take, if you look it up, means the act of redemption to act as the next of kin, to avenge, to revenge, to ransom, to do the part of a kinsman. Translation, the next of kin of someone, if that somebody dies, it's the next of kin's job to seek out justice for the person that just perished. If that person has left behind a family, it is the next of kin's job to make sure that the family is secured and the family's land is well kept. 
part of that responsibility, if the person dies without having a child, it is their responsibility to marry that next of kin or the brother, in, in, in most more often than not's cases, the brother's widow to have a child in his name. It's also if someone willingly surrenders themselves to slavery because of a debt, and I want you to pay attention to this. If someone willingly surrenders themselves to slavery in ancient Israel, and remember, this isn't slavery the way that we think of slavery. This isn't the Roman version of slavery that we're accustomed to here in America. This is what we would probably call indentured servitude, where you basically pay off your debts by working for free for somebody for a period of seven years, and then the debts are completely forgiven and you're provisioned. But it's your next of kin's responsibility, if that person has the ability to pay your debts off, to get you out of, of that type of servitude, it's their responsibility to do so. We need to know that that's in there. And again, to exact vengeance for someone who has is, who is perished, who has died because of murder. So again, just to recap really quickly, the responsible for seeking justice for a murdered relative, for ensuring that fellow property remains in the family, and to perform this activity to be the redeemer of your family, you had legal qualifications. First, you had to be the male next of kin, you had to be willing to assume the responsibility for either the redemptive act or the marriage. You had to be capable of ensuring that your family's property would be well cared for, that it wouldn't just sit, follow, and do nothing, that it would be planted, harvested, the excess would be sold and provisioned for the poor, etc. It wasn't good enough to just take possession of it. You had to make sure that it prospered. The same way with the people under your care. If you participated in the extension of this, which is called the Leverite marriage, the person that you married, you had to reckon, reckon as a wife beyond circumstance. You had to take care of her. You had to provide for all of her needs. She effectively became the manager of your household. And whoever her firstborn son was, was treated as the firstborn of her former, of her deceased husband's property so that that family remains intact. Family is a precious thing in this society. I don't think that we often get that. Family is considered to be a direct gift of God. The land that you inherit because of the, 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 the promise of God through Israel, the land is also a gift with precious uh, attributes to it. The giving up of the land of promise is, is to, to turn your back on God effectively. And in many commentaries, that, that's cited as one of the reasons that Naomi's children and husband die for abandoning the land of promise. But we'll get into that in just a second. And I hope that you see the parallels here between the way that the, the church is to Christ and the way that Ruth is to Boaz. And I think that we had a late coming question in last time that asked about, well, what does, what does, how does the church find meaning in this story? So this session is basically a, a gigantic answer to that very simple question. Now, when we talk about a Leverite, what we're talking about is a Goel plus. The Goel, remember, is simply the next of kin that has all of these capabilities. But a Leverite is the, the piece of that custom that involves marrying the widow of a dead relative. 
It's usually reserved for the brother of someone who died childless. And again, the widow is married to have a son in the name of the deceased. The oldest brother marries the widow, offers her his resources and protection, raises the son in the name of the deceased so that the family will go on. Okay, we've covered that. Um, if the husband dies prior to having, I think that this is just a, if the Leverite, if there is a next of kin that is unwilling to either have, uh, to redeem the property or to marry the widow, that is seen as a shame. Because again, remember that goel means that you are performing the duty of the next of kin. It is, it's, it's as much a verb as it is a noun. And if they're unwilling to do that, if your next of kin is unwilling to act as their avenger of blood, is unwilling to seek justice for his relatives, both in the case of providing for them if they're poor, or making sure that the law is enforced, if they're unwilling to do that or incapable of doing that, then in front of the public gates, which is effectively the city hall of any city in Israel, they have to remove their shoes and hand it over to the widow or hand it over to the next of kin as a sign that they are powerless, that they are without strength. It's considered a visible sign of shame. Which is why in the book of Ruth, when Boaz identifies the next closest or a relative that's closer to Naomi than himself, the guy takes off his, his sandal and passes it to Boaz. See, we think of that as just an, an antiquated custom, but really what he's doing, either because he doesn't want to marry another wife, or because he, has, he, he wants the property, but he doesn't want to take care of the widow. And this is a public declaration of shame on himself because of that. We don't ordinarily get that, because we're reading it with Western eyes. But that's what's transpiring here. Another thing that we don't often think about is the land of promise. When in the book of Joshua, Israel was divided according to tribe and according to family as well, it was seen as a direct gift of God to the people. Land is vital. One of the lessons that, that my family learned during the time of the Great Depression is that we weren't poor, we just didn't have any money. But we had a good-sized farm. My family had the means to provide for itself, even though they didn't have paper dollar income at the time. They still had crops that they could grow. They still had uh, livestock that they could subsist off of because they had land. And that's what is in their mind right now, a land flowing with milk and, and honey. So to abandon the land is to turn your back on God, to turn your back on your family, to turn your back on your tribe. A means of provision from generation to generation. Also, it meant turning your back on your children. So this is an agrarian nation. Even if you had a trade, even if you were a blacksmith, even if you were a, a carpenter, a builder, even if you were anything else, you were a farmer first and that thing secondary because that's how you took care of your children. That's how you took care of your family. You produced, you sold what you couldn't take. You provided for the traveler, the widow, and the orphan because of the way that you did your harvesting. We'll get into that in just a second. But, but the fields, the livestock, the crops, all of them have an integral part to play, not only, prof not only uh, practically in making sure that your family had something to eat, 
but prophetically too. There's a lot of symbolism as Jesus picks up on when he, when he gives parables of different things. Almost all of them have to do with crops or with livestock. Do you ever notice that? The very way they live their lives has a prophetic message. And it's codified in their law. In the Torah, a parcel of land could be leased out to somebody if you weren't using it, but it could never be truly sold. You could not hand over deed of title to somebody else, but you could let them use or rent off the land for a while if you couldn't use it yourself. It could only be left fallow in terms of debt, disaster, or death, which is what the book of Ruth is covering. If, if that is the case, it falls under the care of the community until either the debt was paid off based off the harvest to the land, or the goel could be determined through record of deed at the city gate. And what I meant by that is that your family tree was kept on file in, in a scroll, and the deed to your property as well. Every time there was a, pur uh, a purchase, every time there was a transfer, every time that a new son was born and would inherit... All that was written down in a scroll, sealed, and the next coming generation would know that they have title to it based on the inscription on the outside of the scroll. Does that sound familiar? So when Boaz goes to the city gates to, de de to declare himself the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, he has the scroll in hand, and he even goes to the next of kin to make sure that they didn't want to take possession of it. But the outside of the parchment would reveal that he is the person, if this person didn't want it, he's the nearer kinsman. He's the next person in line. So that he had the right to break the seal, open the scroll, and claim the property for himself as the next kinsman in line. You see how this relates to what we just read in the throne room of the universe. And again, property could only be redeemed, never purchased. We talked about that also with the, the year of Jubilee. If someone uh, leased property out for a period of time, no matter how much they originally agreed in the contract, if when the year of Jubilee comes in, seven, uh, the 49th year, seven sevens, then the property automatically reverts to its original owners. Anyway. Basic introduction to the book. Uh, the setting takes place originally in Moab and then returns to Judah, specifically the city of Bethlehem. And this takes place during the era of the judges, which is significant because the judges was not a good time to be alive. If you ever have the opportunity to go back in time and, and live in Israel for a while, the book of Judges does not take place in a place that you want to be. The author, we believe, or at least tradition tells us, is the, the last judge of Israel, the prophet Samuel. It's a biography, usually seen through the eyes of its title character, Ruth. And just so that you have a bit better of an understanding of the story itself, Elimelech, who is Naomi's husband that perishes, his name, very ironically, is God, translates, God is my king. Naomi, the widow, her name literally translates to, 
beautiful or agreeable. A person willing to make an agreement. And we see that come to pass. Judah, of course, the land that they're going back to means the praise of the Lord. Bethlehem means the house of bread, which is significant for a number of reasons. One, because it's the place of a harvest. And two, because a person who was born there gains the title, the bread of life. One of her children, Malon, literally means infirmity or disease. Her other child means finished. Uh, Chilion, I believe, means either finished or wasting away. You've got to be wondering, what's the story behind that? Did this mom want her kids to be picked on in the middle of the playground? Hey, disease, come over here. It's time to pick tides for dodgeball. Ruth means either beauty or friendship. Boaz means in his strength. Should also be noticed that there is two. There are two freestanding pillars in front of Solomon's temple, and one of them is named Boaz. Obed, who is the child of Boaz and Ruth, his name literally translates into worshiper. Now, this book is unique because of the fact that so many things could have gone wrong in this story. Actually, come to think of it, it's not that unique in the Bible, is it? God makes a habit of turning stories that should have gone horribly wrong into things that go uh, wonderfully right. Gentile marriage in the Torah is forbidden, especially for Moabites. God, however, what the law could not accomplish... Grace did. One other thing that you need to know about this particular city among all of Israel at this time, you, you hear the phrase mentioned all throughout the book of the Judges, where when there was no king in Israel, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges is characterized as a time where Israel spirals more and more out of control. Israel abandons God. God sends one of the tribes surrounding them into Israel to dominate them as a form of judgment. They turn around back to God, realizing their sin, and cry out for a deliverer. Does that sound familiar? And God raises up a prophet known as a judge, not only a prophet, but a, a, a ruler, a religious ruler as well, who reclaims Israel for its own people, for the people of God. And then the prophet dies. And the same thing happens again, only much, much worse. Every time, every generation, they get worse and worse and worse. Where everyone does what is, where there is no king in Israel, but everyone does what is right in their own times. But Bethlehem was an exception. Bethlehem seems to be a conservative city where they're still practicing the law of God where they still hold to the values and the traditions and the culture of Israel, in spite of everything that's going on surrounding them. Harvests also play a big part in the book. In the introduction of this book, it takes place during the spring, during the Passover harvest, which is the barley harvest. As Ruth is making her way through the field of Boaz, Boaz is commanding his people to let some of what they're gathering up drop away so that she can glean them. 
Um, later on, when they get married, they get married during, or, or Ruth rather proposes to Boaz. How's that for a turnaround? During the wheat harvest, after Boaz has had a giant celebration with all of his workers. Wheat harvest takes place during Pentecost. So the cup was passed. The bride was declared. Pin this down in your notes. The bride was declared at Pentecost. In fact, to this day, if you go to a synagogue, the book of Ruth is one of your readings for Pentecost festival. Harvests are often also prophetic. In the case of Matthew, we see that the harvest is also used by Jesus to describe the end of the church age or the gathering of the church, the gathering of the bride of Christ. Some basic types of the characters. Naomi, in many commentaries, represents the people of Israel returning to the land after a period of desolation. Ruth is often identified with the church being the Gentile bride who's brought into the family of God first through faith and then through marriage. Boaz is seen as a Christ figure, as a type, uh, as in prototype, not someone that necessarily is the same as but a forerunner of. The kinsman redeemer who redeems the land through grace and through grace, excuse me, formalizes the bride as a member of the family of God and welcomes her into the land of her of his father as her new home. Does that sound familiar? It's a it's it's an Old Testament shadow of a New Testament reality. The law of gleaning and provision. As Ruth and Naomi are destitute, they're both widows. They're both widows living in Israel. They take place in a custom that is peculiar to Israel. Because if you had a field the owner of the field could only harvest in one pass. You had to, to pay for a bunch of people to grab their sickles and grab their bags, and they only had one chance to bring in the harvest, and they had to leave the corners standing erect. They could not harvest what's in the corners of their field. That had to be left up so that if someone was destitute, if they were a widow, if they were an orphan, if they were impoverished, or if they were a traveler, a foreigner working their way through Israel at the time, they would have something that they could pull off the plants to sustain themselves. So when Boaz is talking to his servants and tells them uh, to uh, accidentally drop some of the barley that they've gathered, he's fulfilling that custom. But I want you also to notice that in this particular, uh, for lack of a better term, welfare provision in the, in the law of God, the person who is the beneficiary of that charity has to work to provide for themselves. They have to work to provide for themselves. The provision is laid out there. All they have to do is take it. A threshing floor, incidentally, is also a prophetic image. Um, when the Bible says harvest, it's talking about both gleaning and threshing. Um, a, a threshing floor was basically a saddleback in a hillside, a large flat area, where you'd take all of your grain that was collected, still in its husk, more than likely still in its ear, you'd winnow it away from its ear, and you'd take it in these big wicker baskets, shake it up, and then toss it in the air. The wicker would, or the the, the, the wicker would wipe away the chaff 
And as you tossed it up and caught it, the lighter chaff would be blown off course, would be blown by the wind away, and the heavier seeds, the grain that you were going to use, would fall back into the basket. The chaff was to be burned as refuse. That's why threshing floors, if uh, you ever see them in Scripture in a prophetic tale, they're usually a symbol of judgment. Because whatever is not usable is burned. As we get through chapter 3 of the book of Ruth, when Ruth actually proposes marriage to Boaz, she asks him something startling. She asks him to set your skirt over me. And there are a lot of commentaries out there that believe that something a little... uh, Obscene is going on in this scene. But again, that's, what, that's because we're reading the Bible with very westernized eyes. We're not reading it in their own context. The hymn of our, when Jesus was walking through Judea and, and the, the lady who was hemorrhaging reached out to him to be healed, she knew that she didn't have to speak to him just if she touched the, the hem of his robe. She would be healed. When the Roman soldiers gathered his clothes after the crucifixion, they were trying to rip off what from his robe? The hem. When David saw Saul, the king of Israel, was in the grips of insanity, and he wanted to prove that he was still loyal to the crown, He goes into Saul's royal tent. He sneaks up on them. He takes out a dagger and he rips what from Saul's royal robes? His hem, his sash. See, the reason why that's important, the hem of a robe, uh, number one, there was always supposed to be a blue thread through it as a sign that whoever this was was a Jew or was bound by the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, They were also patterned They were very ornate, this little band around your robe, around your skirt, however it's translated. But there was also a very ornate pattern in there that represented your clan and your family and your tribe. But more importantly, there was a little piece of it also that represented you and your authority. It was effectively your driver's license. It was your source of identity, your source of authority. If you were the head of a household, the way that the hem of your robe, the, the garment was decorated, was your evidence of that. It was the same as a signet ring. So when, just like in Ezekiel, when, uh, when Ruth asks to spread your skirt over me, what she's asking him to do is take me under your protection. Make me part of your household. That's why Naomi coaches her in what to say. She wasn't trying to tell her to be obscene. She was trying to tell her, this is the way our customs work. So go to him. Here's what you're going to say. Here's how you're going to say it. And this is the time of day you're going to do it. And it works. It's a lesson that we should all carry. So who are these people in this story? Boaz, again, represents the concept of the kinsman redeemer. Someone who was a close relative. Someone who was willing 
to make the redemptive act. He was also incidentally willing to pay the bride price. We'll get in on, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit more in the next session. He was someone capable of seeing to her benefit and the benefit of her children and the benefit of the land that was associated with her. And he also was willing to assume all the obligations without any conflict. He had a sound legal and theological pedigree. Now, what do I mean by that? He was part of the family that would of he was part of the family that would be the family of kings. He was part of the tribe of Judah, but no ordinary person within the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. That's where the theology comes in. See, in his family, there was already a Gentile enemy that was brought in through faith and through marriage into his own household. So this was a bit of history repeating. The exception was made once. It can be here again especially since she was now converted into the worship of God. Now remember also that Boaz is the grandfather, or Boaz begat Obed, begat Jesse, begat David. He was the royal, the, part of the back of the royal line. You would think that God would turn his back on a family like that. Two Gentiles, both of them enemies, as part of your family tree. But God accepted it. When he claims that we're grafted onto the root of Jesse, this is what he's talking about. This is a forerunner of our place in God's story. We are the Gentile bride brought into the family, not only the family of, of, of God in the greater Israeli, since we are brought into the royal line grafted on to the kingship of Israel. So he had both the legal and the theological pedigree. He was well-respected and possessed civil authority, meaning that he was someone that when he went to the city gate, which was effectively the town hall of the day, and he told someone to do something, what did they do? They did it. He was effectively a co-mayor in this community. He was also characterized personality-wise by the fact that he was gracious. He saw someone in need. And instead of, 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 of uh, greedily harboring every single grain of barley and wheat for himself, he tells his servants, let some scatter out to be picked up. Give to them because they're in need of it. He was wealthy, but he was also very loving. When he goes... To Ruth. The other thing I need to mention about a Goel, and you need to write this down in your notes because I don't think that I spelled it out this way. Because to, to take... to The Goel was a voluntary responsibility. You had to be willing to do it. That's kind of spelled out, but I don't think that I emphasize the fact that it was voluntary. He didn't have to do this. But he chose to do this. Ruth was the Gentile. Not only a Gentile, she was a Moabite. She was the, the, the generational enemy of Israel. But what the wall forbade, 
grace allowed, grace provided a way. The law forbade this kind of intermarriage. And the law dismissed her. But grace, through grace she was redeemed. Through grace she was provided for. Through grace she was brought into the family. Through grace she found a position and was honored. Only one person, one of two people in the whole Bible who are women so honored by having a book named after them. You think about that. She has a place of high prominence in the Israeli community through today. The Feast of Pentecost is celebrated by the reading of her, her life story and the celebration of who she was. She was brought in alongside Naomi, not replacing her, but brought in alongside of her. She is a forerunner, of, she is a, a, a type, if you will, of, of our place in the story of the church. Naomi is often thought of as a representative for Israel itself. Her family had abandoned God, abandoned the promised land during one of its most stressful times, a time of famine. And it's often seen in many of the, 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 the rabbinic commentaries that the loss of her husband and two sons is seen as God's punishment for that. Now again, it's not spelled out in Scripture, but I want you to consider it. When the people of God, when her family, when her tribe fell into hard times, in that culture she was seen as turning her back, the whole family turning their backs on God, on the promised land, on her family, on the tribe of Judah. Walking away from God. I want you to think about all of this for a second. But in her drifts, she became part of a Gentile kingdom, or she took, took place among a Gentile kingdom. Sounds of the diaspora from Israel. She learns about Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, through Ruth. Just as we, might, as we will see later, Israel comes to know of Christ through the church. But in a turnabout of fair play, Ruth discovers the ways of Boaz through Naomi. Where do the oracles of God come from? Where does the Bible come from? For the most part, who gave us the text of what we're reading through... Who wrote Ruth? Was it a Gentile? No, it was Israel. So Israel keeps informing the way that we think of God because of their culture, because of the law, because of their writings, because of the Bible just as we hope to point them to their Messiah. This is one last thing that I want to leave you with. Um, it's a, a devotional that I adapted from Chuck Missler that I just kind of want you to keep in mind when we talk about the New Testament being in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament being in the New Testament revealed. The law is perfect, which is why we can't keep it. The law is holy, which is why we stand condemned under it. The law is just, which means it contains on its own no mercy. The law prohibits, but where the law prohibits, grace gives. The law condemns, but grace redeems. 
The law reveals and points out our sin, but grace atones for that sin. The law is the knowledge of sin, but grace brings redemption. The law demands obedience, knowing that it's impossible for the people to carry out, but grace gives the power and the desire to obey. The law says do or do not, but grace says it is done. The law curses, but grace blesses. The law executes the sinful. Grace makes the sinner come alive. The law shuts every mouth before God, but grace raises their voices in praise. The law tells us that the wages of sin is death, but grace tells us that the gift of God is everlasting life. The law tells us that the soul that sins shall die, but grace tells us repent and believe and you shall live. The law puts us under bondage, but grace sets us free to become the children of God. The grace found, excuse me, the law found its fulfillment in its completion in Christ. But grace abides with the people of God forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, any questions from that before we go on? Again, I would encourage you to, to go over the text of Ruth first. That way this has more meaning to you. But I hope you see how this is a dimmed, I should say, reflection of what's going on in Revelation. It's a practical story, a practical commentary on what John is seeing. So that when John sees the scroll of redemption in his hand sealed, the, the, the hand of God, I should say, and the angels of the Lord fly through heaven, through earth, even under the ocean, to find someone worthy of opening the scroll and popping the seals and it's reported to him that none were found. He weeps convulsively. He knows this story. He understands what the scroll represents. He knows that we are in need of a kinsman redeemer, and yet it has to be a kinsman of Adam. It has to be someone who is a person, a human being. It has to be someone, though, that is without sin, without blemish, who has stayed attached to God even where we haven't. Someone that didn't drift away into the land of Moab, who didn't go into the land of the sinful, who didn't rebel against God. Someone who stayed the course all the way through creation. And then he, we, we hear that no one did that, so he weeps convulsively in the scriptures as we go from Revelation 5 to 6. And yet one of the elders says, weep not, for the Lamb of God is worthy. We are Ruth. We are the Gentile bride who stands in destitution, having a debt we cannot possibly pay before God. But Christ was willing to redeem us. He is willing, He is able, and He's capable of not only paying the price for us but also capable of seeing to our good for the sake of the glory of God. Does that make sense? 
Okay. Any questions? If not, next session, we'll be covering the often misused and misapplied teaching of what the Bible, what the Greek text calls the arpazo, what we more colloquially call the rapture. For that, I want you to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as your background. And I want you to pin down and have in mind what you've been taught about the rapture beforehand as you're journaling. Just put down in brief somewhere. This is what I've been taught about the rapture. I want you to also share your personal thoughts as what you've, you've thought about it up to this point in time. And I want you to really discuss it in groups because I think that you'll find that as you're talking about it to those other people in your groups, you'll find that there's a lot of division and a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of, I hate to put it this way, but ignorance about what the rapture really is, what it represents, and what our part is to play in it. And I want you to journal a second page. I want you to journal the differences that you find between yourself and the people in your groups. So for the background sessions, we've covered the book of Ruth. We're going to talk about the rapture next session and then Daniel's 40 weeks, the following two. So that all being said, if there's nothing else to discuss, all right. Did you learn something this evening? Are you glad you came this evening? Were you blessed? All right. All God's people said, Amen. Heavenly Father, again, it is with thankful hearts that we come to you, and we, we thank you for this time that we can gather together, that we can seek your counsel and kneel before your throne and, and learn more about you, to learn about the extraordinary links that you went to to save us, to claim us as your own. So, Lord, as we, as we prepare to depart uh, from this evening's study, Lord, Continue to open our minds to the possibilities for helping those who have yet to come to know you in a free pardon of sin. For those whom this is an academic exercise but not a spiritual one. For those who uh, don't yet know the hope of your victory that you've purchased for them. Put us toward this task. Bless us with your grace and your mercy that we might reflect it to all others that we come into contact with. And Lord, we'll give you thanks and praise for everything that you've done, as well as praise in advance for what you are continuing to do. For it is in the name of our Redeemer that we pray, Christ the King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.